The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to show to you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. On the night of my wedding, as the reception wound down, I went and changed out of my wedding clothes. Is that still a thing? Going away outfits? You know? I wore this, it's my best color. When I came out of the courtyard, my bride stood in the middle of the crowd with her guitar, and she sang me an Over the Rhine song called, I Want You to Be My Love. I, I won't cry as much tonight as I did then, hopefully, but I can still picture her standing there in the evening light, singing as if we were the only two people in the world and everyone else has just sort of, like, disappeared or something. A decade into marriage, every day has topped that one. No, that's not true. <laughs> Most days are not romantic like that. We have had funerals and fights. We've had loss and listlessness. And like any other couple, we've weathered storms and emerged on the other side of them by grace. But the times that our marriage works the best are the times when we each know that the other wants us to be their love, when we can rest in that and have security in that. Our gospel lesson this evening comes on the heels of some pretty tense moments in the ministry of Jesus. In the preceding verses in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has seemingly in a fury just cleansed the temple and then cursed a fig tree, only to be questioned by the religious leaders about his authority. And he artfully dodges their question, but then in response to their demand to know by what authority is he teaching these things and doing these things, he tells the parable that we just heard read. He says, what do you think? There's a man who had two sons. Now the point of the parable, I think, is fairly straightforward. Jesus himself explains it as a way of driving home his rather unsavory point to his religious interlocutors. There are those who have an air of respectability about them who respond to the Father's call by saying, Lord, that's the literal word, Lord, I go, but then don't go. Likewise, there are those who initially respond with uproarious disrespect, but afterward change their mind. They repent, and they go about doing the Father's will. 
The tax collectors and the prostitutes were those who lived with utter disregard for God and his covenant and commands. I won't do what you say was their life motto. But when John the Baptist came preaching a Baptist of repentance, they responded. They repented. They changed their minds about themselves and about God. The religious crowd of the day, on the other hand, lived their lives utterly consumed with the commands of God. Yes, sir, was ready at their lips at all times, but it became self-referential. It became hollow. It became a show, this sort of fake response with no follow-through. They're like Michael Scott shouting, I declare bankruptcy, as if that's like actually going to do anything and solve their problems. But they don't actually obey. They don't actually change their mind and go into the vineyard of the Father. Notice, again, the setting for this parable is going out to labor in the vineyard. This is a very recurring theme for Jesus' parables, especially in Matthew. We're still working with the themes that we heard in previous weeks about the last being first and the first being last. Do you see it? The prostitutes and tax collectors were last, and now they're first. The Pharisees and the scribes were first, and now... Their last, if at all. In many ways, this gospel lesson is about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is a phrase that Paul uses to sort of bookend his letter to the Romans. So if you want to understand at a deeper level what the obedience of faith is, you can read Romans this week. And there's much to be said about the obedient life. Much that is said, I fear, though, forms us into those second sons. We hear about what is required in the obedient life, and we say, yes, sir, but we lack the impulse to follow through. So often, Christian teaching on the moral life leads us to picture God frowning and us yawning. At best, it's boring if you weren't so scary and angry. And this picture, I think, is due to the lie that has been strangling humanity since the beginning. The lie of the serpent to Eve was that she was not really free so long as she remained in obedience to God. Indeed, she would only be free when she asserted herself to become like God. And since that time, human beings have been locked into this idea of God as the cosmic buzzkill. He's the heavenly neighbor who calls the cop when our party goes on too late. Right? This lie is so pervasive that even when we read things like this parable, everything gets routed through this lens of duty, this kind of begrudging obedience. Father Alexander Schmemann has this in view, and he says that obedience taken in itself is not a virtue. It is blind submission, and there is no light in blindness. Only love for God frees obedience from blindness and makes it joyful. But then he goes on to say that love without obedience to God is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Only obedience to God, he says, the only Lord of creation gives love its true direction and makes it fully love. True obedience is thus true love for God. True obedience is true love for God. You see, both sons in our parable heard the invitation to work in the vineyard as an obligation to duty, a drudgery, and so they wanted to avoid it. We can't blame them. 
Now, the first son saw past this lie. He was able to see past the lie that working in the vineyard was a thing of duty and drudgery. And so he ended up being able to see the goodness of the father, and in faith, he repented. He changed his mind. He turned directions and went back and worked in the vineyard. Friends, being invited to labor in the vineyard of the Father has nothing to do with drudgery. Nothing. It is instead to enter a courtyard and find your spouse arrayed in beauty singing to you, I want you to be my love. That's what it means to enter into the Father's vineyard. As I mentioned last week, the image of the vineyard is used throughout Scripture as the place of God's continued work of love with his people. The vineyard is as Martin Luther so audaciously put it in reference to baptism, one of God's trysting places. It's his romantic rendezvous with his people. In the Song of Songs, we're treated to an extended love poem between two lovers, the love and the beloved, and there's this chorus of onlookers. And at one point, one of the characters says, Behold, my beloved comes... He's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful woman, and come away. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. Our vineyards are in bloom. As the lovers sort of tease out their desire, the chorus of onlookers chimes in, and they say, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. To enter into the vineyard of the Father, to follow the call of obedience in faith, is to enter into the trysting place of God. It's to become part of his bride, part of his people. It's to hear the voice of your beloved calling you and saying, Arise, my love, and come away. There's no duty here. To enter into the vineyard of God is to find yourself being knit together and made whole in the gaze of his love. And as you walk between the vines, you smell the fruit of love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, goodness, and you will find yourself singing, as we did with the psalmist, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. All of them. After all, the will of the Father, Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, is that those who look to the Son and believe in him should be given eternal life. That's what it means to do the will of the Father. This is the work of God, to believe on the one whom he has sent. And if I could just end by tickling your sacramental imagination, it is in this exact passage in John where Jesus says that doing the will of the Father is believing on him who he has sent. That Jesus tells us, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Friends, The song of God from the beginning of time until now has been, I want you to be my love. As Augustine said, if you would see God, here is what you should imagine. God is love. Then Augustine goes on and he says, love is praised to you 
And I take his words as my own. If if love pleases you, if the love of the Father pleases you, have it. Possess it. There is no need to rob anyone, no need to buy it. It is free. Take it. Clasp it. There is nothing sweeter. If this is what it is like merely to talk about it, what must it be like when one has it? There's nothing else to be said. As we come to the Eucharist feast, we hear the angels and the saints that have gone before us, that great multitude of witnesses singing to us, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.